0: this is Sophia and I'm Victoria and you're listening to It's All History to Me, Auburn's History Radio Hour at 7 a.m. on Wednesdays. Each week we will interview a history professor with the theme of power and people. Let's get started.
1: and welcome to It's All History to Me here live on WEGL 91.1 FM at Auburn University. I'm Victoria here with Sophia and today we are welcoming Dr. Brooks onto our show. Dr. Brooks is the Director of Graduate Studies in the Auburn University History Department. She completed her undergraduate Bachelor's of Arts in History at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, before completing her Doctor in History at the University of Tennessee. Dr. Brooks currently serves as professor in the History Department and specializes in the 20th Century South, particularly Southern labor history and the effects of the Second World War and the Cold War on this history. In 2004, she published a book entitled Defining the Peace, Race, World War II Veterans, and the Remaking of Southern Political Tradition, uh, from, published from the University of North Carolina Press in 2004. She also published a new book last year, which we'll touch on later. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Brooks.
2: Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here. It's yeah. nice to see you.
1: Yeah, thrilled to have you on. All right. So to start things off, what got you into history?
2: Um, kind of the, the, the way a lot of... Um, both historians and southerners get into history which is it was sort of a family tradition mm. um, and I, I grew up and this sounds like really kind of uh, I don't know stereotypical in a way but I mean I basically grew up on the front porch oh, yeah. sitting around listening to my grandparents talk oh. about where they grew up that's um, really cool which was either East Tennessee or Southeast Kentucky oh, and yeah. as it turned out I my grandfather in particular was a really great storyteller, mm-hmm. so I loved just kind of sitting around with family and listening to all of that. And then my dad, um, who was an engineering faculty, but actually if he, he might have gone into history if that hadn't been what, what he did, because he loved history. So he yeah. did the whole, like, I'm dragging you to every Civil War fort in the <laughs> Southeast or you know, everywhere across the country. So we all kind of grew up loving history. Yeah. And then... Um, So it really has a connection to wanting to make a difference Mm -hmm. in the world, I think, initially. Um, And then also just like kind of that family connection and sense of place and identity. And that's how I kind of got into it. And then also I just I like writing and I like telling stories. So in terms of like a structure and format for me, it really kind of, you know, was a, a nice way to plug into all of that.
0: Oh, awesome. Very cool. Very interesting, but going off of that, what motivated you to focus on the effects of World War II and the Cold War and the American South in particular?
2: Well, I wanted to do um, a history that I really was passionate about and really loved, and honestly, I'm terrible at languages, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, at UMass Boston, which had a really good little history department, um, I actually took a lot of courses in non-U.S. and non-Western history, so like Asian history for example. Um, And I loved that, but I knew I wasn't great at languages, so I had to, you know, go into something else eventually. So I wanted to do Southern history uh, to start with, and then uh, when I went to the University of Tennessee, um, the person who became my mentor there, James C. Cobb, um, he arrived there at the same time, and his specialty is the history of the modern South. Oh, yeah. Um, And so I was. That was a lot of the coursework I took. I took a you know a great diversity of things. Actually, when it when I hit the point of having to think really think hard about a dissertation topic, um, I spent a lot of time talking to uh, Jim Cobb about it, and this kind of intersected well with the work he was doing. And he's the one who actually introduced me to the idea of looking at what World War II veterans were doing mm-hmm. in Southern politics, and I was actually interested in. Violence and the history of violence, and and how that uh, was both sort of exceptional, or considered to be kind of exceptional in the South, but also mm-hmm. not. Yeah. And so, World War II veterans um, were kind of an avenue into that theme mm-hmm. because there was there was a lot of political chaos in in some areas when these veterans came back and wanted to enter into Southern politics, which was really at that time very locked down. Mm-hmm and not open to new groups coming in and Mm -hmm. participating. Obviously we know, of course, not open to African-American participation, but it also wasn't open to the participation of basically the majority of Southerners. Mm -hmm. And so there were some pretty violent clashes that happened. Mm -hmm. And so I started looking into that, and that led to looking at Georgia because it had so much availability of resources, of sources and and diversity.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. That's really cool and a neat path to take to lead Mm -hmm. to your topic. Mm -hmm. What inspired you to focus on the role of
2: immigrants in the American South during these time periods? Um, Yeah, so that was a real shift away from the time period and topic that I had done before. Mm -hmm. Um, I tend to honestly get a little bored (laughs) when I've really worked intensively on something for a while, and Mm -hmm. then I'm like, I'm ready for just a complete change. And so I had this other... um, strike that I was kind of working on that was in 1950 and had done a public history exhibit Mm -hmm. that uh, was in Tennessee um, after the first book. And around the time and I was trying to decide what to do with that, if I wanted to actually do a monograph based on that strike, I have tons of research already done on it, Mm. Um, the HB 56 was enacted in the the state of Alabama, which was the anti-immigrant law. Yeah. Um, and because my daughter is an immigrant, Mm -hmm. a first generation immigrant, um, and because, you know, I just have kind of an innate sense of justice. Yeah. I got really involved, um, in the activism to try to overturn Mm. HB 56 and to help organize with immigrant communities in Auburn. So we we formed a group called Somos Tigers for Immigrant Justice. Oh, yeah. Um, and Tuscaloosa has a similar group Mm -hmm. there, um. Or did. And so for about a year or so, I was really involved in that going down to the state capital and uh, witnessing there and and protesting. And then I kind of in that context was like started, of course, as an academic and historian, like, oh, you know, I know, obviously, Alabama is a state of immigrants, just Mm -hmm. like the United States is a country of immigrants. Right. Yeah. Um, And I was honestly pretty disgusted and angry. Yeah. At uh, this idea that somehow Alabama was for some people and not others. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to find a way to kind of meld these things together um, and also find a topic that would allow me to not have to travel that much. Yeah. Since yeah. My daughter was fairly young. Well, that makes sense. Um, and so I started thinking of an immigration history of Alabama and, mm. and like, you know, I had these grand desi- uh, ideas that it would go from. Uh, the Battle of Abila early with DeSoto mm-hmm. all the way to the present day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, of course, that was hu- huge, and I right. actually wanted to get it done. So discovered that if I looked at the New South at the late 19th, early 20th century, mm-hmm. that was really the most fascinating story to me. Oh, yeah. Um, and also it was within the range of of uh, what my training already is mm-hmm. as opposed to you know, looking at the period of, you know, Alabama statehood, for oh, example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and it and it it really intersected well with my interest in labor history because that the immigrants that came in that time period are primarily coming to be laborers, right. And So that yielded enough of a source base and and really great questions, um, and it's an area that people are starting to look at also, mm. so.
1: That's super interesting.
2: And and you know just like the first book, I really wanted to be able to tell stories, mm-hmm. and in that time period, I discovered. The, the sources really yielded a lot of great stories. Uh, yeah. And I have Ancestry.com and Newspapers.com to thank for that oh, because yeah. they digitize so many records and it allows you to, in one source base, kind of find somebody and then sometimes be able to cross reference that and trace a story mm. through the other sources. Oh, wow, yeah. Which was um, not a, a very different kind of way to work than I had done before yeah. in terms of using the digital records. Mm. So that's really cool.
1: A neat path, and cool that it combined like activism and also history, and wanted right. to like yeah. make
2: that both intersect in that way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, thanks. And there's, you know, there is a history to that history, right? right. There's um, historians have a history of activism, mm-hmm. um, you know, and particularly actually Southern historians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's not that unusual. Yeah. Well, very <laughs> and good. labor historians especially. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. <laughs> I- As we touched on in our last episode, through our conversation with Dr. Dombey, we know that the South has a complex history going back beyond World War II. How did World War II contribute to the South's political development in a unique way?
2: Good questions.
0: Um, So
2: World War II, and you have to kind of put it in the context of of a broader um, period of change. Mm. So you kind of think of that era World War II is really the most important element in that period. But you also have to think of the Great Depression, New Deal, World War II, and then the early Cold War. So together that kind of creates this era that um, kind of disrupted the structures that had sort of sustained um, political power for Mm -hmm. the white democratic majority in most southern states. And so the war's impact was economic, it was social, mm-hmm. and it was political. Right. So in terms of the economic impact, you know, it was like it, it infused a great deal um, of federal spending in the South. Um, and it created some opportunities for groups to, to increase their mobility throughout the South and then also yeah. to go outside the South to mm-hmm. leave, to go for these jobs in Detroit for the auto industry, for example, um, and all the war industries there mm-hmm. on, and on the West Coast and in the Midwest and, and other places. And all of that basically adds up to a destabilization because once you get these opportunities for others to pursue, and then you also get, of course, the military draft, people who volunteer and then people who are drafted into the military. And for World War II, that's a significant, that's several millions of people, whether or not they went overseas. Um, then that also increases uh, the agency of the people who remain. And so you have, like, for example, a lot of farm workers who are leaving either to go into industry, industrial jobs, or leaving the South entirely to go to these jobs, oh, yeah. means, which means you know, farmers within the South, for example, suddenly find that it's harder, uh, and this was a little bit of a broader trend, but it intensifies during World War II, it's harder to force Your farm laborers to do what you want to do for the price you want to pay. Mm -hmm. For example, Mm -hmm. when you have the War Manpower Commission, um, you know, establishing quotas of what things have to be, what how much labor a state has to produce for the war effort, or you know, the military is offering an avenue out even for black southerners. You know, um, so it just destabilizes a lot of things on the home front. It increases some opportunities, um, and probably most importantly, it puts money in the pocket. Yeah. for a lot of Southerners who hadn't had it in a very long time.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, with the Great Depression, um, th- the South was the region that was pretty much hardest hit by the Great Depression, oh, yeah, yeah. and the region that benefited uh, tremendously in some ways from the New Deal. But the New Deal was not of a scale large enough to really truly destabilize things, and it took kind of like the huge amount of federal spending plus uh, pulling so many millions out of the labor pool to go into the military that Mm -hmm. really destabilized things. Right. And that sort of continues even with the end of World War II because you you end up getting, um, you know, the early Cold War. Mm -hmm. That starts before World War II is over.
1: Right. Yeah.
2: And for the South also, I mean, climate-wise, it's attractive for the military as a training area. Mm -hmm. And so that pattern was established in World War I. That's expanded in World War II. So you have the military bases, military spending in the South kind of boosting incomes. And so you get sort of towns growing and and towns growing into cities. Mm -hmm. It's very uneven, though. So there are lots of areas and groups of people that are kind of left out of a lot of that. But it's enough to destabilize these kind of structures of power. Hmm. And so you do get this intensive push – that starts in the 1920s, really, um, and then intensifies with World War II Mm -hmm. of political groups trying to push to open up Southern politics, not because of reasons of justice, but because they want to increase um, industrial development. They want to, you know, modernize the economy. Right. And that requires kind of uh, confronting these count, political county rings that are keeping a tight hand on politics and they mm. don't necessarily want to see opportunities for laborers because then they have to, yeah. you know, compete with people for that labor, which Absolutely. means they're going to have to pay more for labor, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a lot of the impact of the war. Oh, yeah. it, it, it diversifies, it destabilizes, um, and then ultimately what comes out of that is a politics that looks in some ways really similar to... Um, the late 20th century. um, But it's, it's, you know, it's not a liberalized politics. Hmm. You know, um, it's basically you get cliques and groups of people that are successful in bringing down a lot of these county rings, but they themselves are basically pretty conservative. Oh, yeah. So I kind of call that conservative modernization. Mm, Okay, right, where Mm -hmm. they want economic modernization, but they're not interested in true political modernization. Right, right. Only to the degree to which that helps them win office. Yeah,
1: that makes sense. That makes sense. So yeah. changing the structure, but it's still similar, like, theme, I guess. Or
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sense. a good example would be um, in Alabama, uh, Big Jim Folsom wins election as governor in, in 1946. Um, and he, he actually is, of course, he's, you know, he's... Um, in some ways a typical Southern white Democrat, but in other ways he's very atypical mm-hmm. in that he's fairly uh, liberal for the time period uh, mm-hmm. in terms of race. And he doesn't, he's not like your sort of standard white Democrat race baiting politician. Oh yeah, And so yeah. he comes in as a reformer. Mm-hmm. He's a World War II veteran. He attracts a lot of World War II veterans to his campaign.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and he becomes governor um, and he tries to enact some you know, more progressive sort of policies. Mm-hmm. Um, he tends to support black voting initially in the, in the post-war 1940s. And you get that pattern in a lot of states. So um, some of the people that ironically become kind of the architects of massive resistance during the Civil Rights Movement first mm-hmm. come into that through that period of reform. Oh, yeah. And so that includes like George Wallace. Oh,
1: Okay. Mm -hmm. which is really
2: ironic, right? George Wallace comes in on the coattails of Big Jim Folsom.
1: Oh, yeah, that's really
2: interesting. Yeah, you get a similar dynamic in Arkansas with Orville Faubus, Hmm. who will come in um, with uh, Sidney McMath in Arkansas as kind of a more progressive, uh, for-change politician. But then, you know, their politics will take... A turn is they realize what actually is going to sell.
1: Right. Oh yeah. Once you
2: get Brown versus Board of Education, mm. it's going to be something very different. Mm. Um, and so, and then you get people like Herman Talmadge in Georgia, whose father dies. Um, who's a, you know quite a racial reactionary and is elected 1946 mm. as governor, but dies before he can take office. Oh, and yeah. so his son ends up assuming that mantle. And it's mm. it's a complicated another campaign. But Herman Talmadge is definitely um, a racial reactionary, but at the same time, he pushes for sort of some progressive educational policies, the expansion Mm. of the community college system and things like that, Mm. while holding on the whole time to basically white supremacy and white power.
1: Yeah, very interesting, complex, Mm -hmm. but cool. Yeah, definitely.
2: And I shouldn't um, leave out, of course, the role of liberal veterans who Mm -hmm. come back. Um, and uh, really push for political modernization also, led especially by black World War II veterans. Um, And then a a group of white World War II veterans also, some of whom had been New Dealers. So they already had sort of a proclivity towards seeing things differently. Mm -hmm. But for some, it was their experience during the war and serving alongside black soldiers um, and kind of even seeing black soldiers Um, sacrifice for the war effort, or seeing how they were treated Mm -hmm. badly in a segregated armed forces, Mm -hmm. that was a motivation for them to move for black voting and that sort of thing in Southern politics when they came back. Oh, that's really cool.
1: Huh.
0: Yeah. Neat. All right. So we're going to take a two-minute ad break, but we, we will be back after this ad break.
1: All right. Good morning and welcome back. It's all history to me with me, Victoria and Sophia. Today we have Dr. Brooks on and we are wrapping up our introduction conversation with her. Uh, for our final question, before we start talking about your book specifically, broadly speaking, how do you think that um, immigrant status or 20th century Southern politics as a whole relates to power today?
2: Oh, um, well, obviously they both are really relevant mm-hmm. to today. So... Um to go to the first question, immigrant status, of course, uh, immigration reform is a major political issue Mm. and which is interesting, right? Because we, we basically accomplished nothing on it. Right. For a couple decades. Yeah. Um, but it's a continual issue for, you know, all sides of the political spectrum Mm -hmm. basically to keep pushing. And then, um, you know, we have a lots, lots of voters in the United States who, um, are first or second generation immigrants so it's an issue yeah. that's really important to them although i mm-hmm. wouldn't say that they necessarily would be voting in a block you know with sharing the same um, ideas about about politics at all oh, yeah. yeah so to me the the biggest way it resonates t- in politics today is, is it's a sort of an issue around which uh, political parties rally mm-hmm. for the, for better or for worse depending right. on you know their political view mm-hmm. um, and in terms of what was the sec- second part of the question? Ooh, okay. In terms of the other,
1: uh, yeah, immigrant status, and then just twentieth
2: century politics right. as a whole. Twentieth century politics, yeah. Um, I mean, there aren't any issues in twentieth century politics that aren't being still debated mm, today. Yeah. Oh, that's a essentially, good, yeah. Yeah. you know, um, even though. What's happened in the last few years seems really exceptional in mm-hmm. some ways in American politics, but it's really not. I mean, there's historical roots for all of that. Mm. So um, the other way that it's important in terms of Southern politics is this idea of of the South having an out um, what's the word like an outsized influence on the direction of national politics. Oh. Um, and, and that still continues, mm-hmm. or at least the idea of that continues. Yeah, yeah. So if you take these two things together, mm-hmm. actually, you get immigration. More importantly, maybe for the second theme is migration. So oh, yeah. you get the migration creating um, some states increasingly that look a little bit like you know swing states, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. whereas they hadn't for a long time, like Georgia, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the influence of states like Florida in the mm-hmm. national political contest particularly in presidential politics oh, yeah, um, and then you sort of get this idea that continues that somehow these um, negative and ugly themes in mm-hmm. southern politics are responsible for spreading throughout the country and so yeah. it, there's this long in twentieth in the 20th century continuing to today mm-hmm. this idea of the southernization of mm. American politics oh, yeah. hmm. um, and that you know, somehow when things go wrong, um, that can be traced back to the influence of Southern politics. Interesting. Not, a, in my opinion at least, educated opinion, I guess. Not yeah, a lot of yeah. Not a lot of validity to that oh, idea. Oh, yeah, uh-huh. Um, but the idea is still really strong in, mm. in the media particularly, I would Interesting. say. Interesting. Um, and what I mean by that basically is that the if you – sort of see Southern politicians that are able to sort of be reelected and reelected, and Mm -hmm. then they have this, you know, seniority in Congress, for example, so they can chair key committees and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, The past decade, we've seen that um, occurring with politicians that are not Southerners. Oh, yeah. Right, so the strength of conservatism, for example, in the United States is not necessarily – just in the South anymore mm. at all? Yeah. Okay. If it ever was just in the South, right? Right. I right. mean, it's it's in many other parts of the country, and you see that's one reason, right, that Black Lives Matter mm. is a movement that's national, mm-hmm. not regional.
1: Right. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Right. That's a and good
2: that's point. not to diminish the importance of you know white racism in the South by any means, but that's a national issue, hmm. and I think to me that's how I see kind of 20th century politics really resonating to today is yeah. those are those are things that you know we still we talked about in the 20th century we're still sort of yeah. trying to figure out now
1: absolutely that all totally makes sense cool. okay.
0: all right Dr. Brooks, Brooks' first book, defi- titled Defining the Peace, Race, World War II Veterans, and the Remaking of Southern Political Tradition, published in 2004 by the University of North Carolina Press, describes the role of black and white World War II veterans in southern post-war politics, particularly how service empowered veterans of both races and inspired them to, to seek political influence after, when they returned from the war. What inspired you to focus on veterans and their political influence?
2: Well, um, as I said in the introduction, mm-hmm. it was a suggestion um, by my mentor, Jim Cobb. Yeah. The f- but the first place I looked um, was actually Tennessee. Uh, being from Tennessee, that seemed a natural place to look. <laughs> Makes sense. Makes <laughs> right? sense. Yeah. yeah. But as it turned out, um, there was a, um, a particular incident in Tennessee with World War II veterans that, if, that if kind of like a few people knew of but not a lot, and so I first kind of did a little research to find out about that, and that was when I realized this was a story that I thought was just really interesting. Mm, And also, you know, all historians are a product of the context of their own times, Mm -hmm. right? And so, and this is gonna date me in terms of age, but um, if you think of the 50th anniversary of the end of World War II, or of World War II generally, you know, it's coming in the 1990s, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so that was when I was in graduate school okay, and, and becoming an Americanist and then looking for a dissertation topic. And so that was in the back of my mind also. Um, and World War II veterans were in the middle of some of the interesting public history controversies of the 1990s and how yeah. we would commemorate um, the memories or the meaning of World War II. Yeah. Um, So it's the same time period where you get the publication of Tom Brokaw's book, The Greatest Generation, Mm, for example. Right, right. Which is wonderful in that, you know, it has great stories in it about, Mm -hmm. you know, the kind of experiences and sacrifices of these veterans. But it's a very um, one-dimensional understanding of these people who are, of course, very complex Ah, people. Interesting. And the more I looked into – World War II veterans and tried to get a sense of what impact serving in the war had on them, if at all, I discovered there was a great diversity to that impact. And all of that was really interesting. Yeah. So the incident in Tennessee was called the Battle of Athens, Mm -hmm. in Athens, Tennessee, which is um, kind of between Chattanooga and Knoxville towards the east. And just a a small town that had been under the thumb of this political ring pretty corrupt little political ring for generations. And yeah. there was an election in 1946 to um, change, I think it was mayor and some of the city council, something like that. I, it's been a while since I looked at it. but um, And basically, the, a coalition of veterans, white veterans that came back from the war, that had been born and raised there, got together. And ran their own candidates and looked like they were going to win the election. Mm. So the sheriff and his cronies basically stole the ballot boxes. Oh, wow. And took them to the, I think it was the county jail, and locked the doors and started, like, stuffing the ballot boxes with votes. Wow. And the veterans weren't having it, so they went to the federal armory um, and broke into the armory and took all the weapons and then basically formed an assault on the county jail Hmm. and forced, you know, fired on the jail and threw a couple sticks of dynamite and scared the sheriff and the deputies and others and forced them to give up the ballot boxes and so they took the ballot boxes and then declared themselves counted the ballots and declared themselves the winner wow. of this election hmm. and that came to be known the battle of athens huh. and that's what that's where i started in terms of looking at veterans because it, it inter, you know it brought the question the question of political history the veterans in the picture, but also that interest I had in violence and southern violence because it yeah. didn't sort of fit that pattern in the way I expected, yeah. and so I thought initially that I might this whole thing would be about Tennessee, mm-hmm. um, but as it turned out there was there are better sources if I looked at at Georgia, oh, yeah, um, but it was interesting because there were like at least two political assassinations that occurred after 1946 in those two counties right beside each other oh, in wow. Tennessee that were related to that,
1: hmm. to that incident. Really interesting.
2: Yeah, and so every southern state after World War II had some element of that kind of political chaos, hmm. and you could find World War II veterans across the board involved in those events. Interesting. Um, and then I think the next part of that that... I discovered were veterans that were involved in things like the resurrection of the Ku Klux Klan oh. in the post-war 1940s and mm. some other sort of, um, now we would kind of call them almost neo-Nazi type mm. type groups mm. um, that were basically um, aiming at black agency and black voting. And so you had like, in the post-war 1940s, because of kind of a Supreme Court decision in 1944, Smith v. Allwright, you had an opportunity for black voting to increase in Southern Mm. politics. And so you had a lot of organizing in black communities across the South, um, to try to get voter registration. And so there's a, there's a good deal of violence associated Mm. with that. And there's a series of, um, murders of Black world War two veterans related to that political activism that occurs in the post-war 1940s mm. some of these are really well-known cases um, if you're in in southern history yeah like Isaac Woodward for example he wasn't murdered but he was blinded mm. um, in South Carolina by officers when he spoke a way that that someone didn't like on a bus oh. um, and there there's some you know awful sort of incidents yeah uh, like that there's a two World War II veterans that are uh, lynched in Monroe, Georgia, mm. along with their wives wow. um, in 1946 because of the 1946 gubernatorial campaign and Jean Talmadge's um, basic call for people to go out and make sure that no blacks vote in that election. That was in July. Wow. Um, and so there's there's a lot of sort of those incidents related to the activism of World War Two veterans, and then you so you have that across the political spectrum, hmm. which I found really compelling and interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, and really a way that that uh, kind of reflects the complexity of Southern politics.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting that it's not just one side or the other, but the full like. Ugh all the way from right to left. Sort right. Of. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Is there any like common thread that you found uh, throughout the different stories mm-hmm. that you've researched for your book that even though there's a wide variety of like political leanings, is there anything that all of the World War II veterans had in common?
2: Um, you can't really say service in the war entirely because okay. there's diversity to service. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah. Like not every, only a minority of um it's a big minority mm-hmm. but it's still a minority of um soldiers and sailors actually saw combat. Oh in World right. War II, okay. Right. Yeah. So most if they went overseas they didn't necessarily go directly into combat. Mm-hmm. But there's lots of and then others that just stayed stateside yeah. um during the war because there's lots of work that has to be done to support the military. Right. Um but I would say the common thread is a sense of civic entitlement. Oh, okay. Hmm. That once, once you are asked to sacrifice for the state yeah. in that way, yeah. even if you're not going into combat, your life is still disrupted. Right. Or, and you might find opportunity through that service, right? Hmm. Which is true for a lot of these veterans, not necessarily, in some cases, black veterans, but far less for black veterans because of the structural racism. Um, others are able to make use of the GI Bill, for example. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but the sense of civic entitlement really is the common thread, hmm. which is, you know, I've I've given you these years of my life. Yeah. Now I should be a full citizen. Absolutely. And I think that operates in a way that, that we would find familiar and that makes sense when you think of black veterans. Mm-hmm. Because they're actually being asked to go work for and or defend a country that doesn't respect them as citizens for and sure. doesn't allow them to vote freely mm-hmm. in all parts of the United States. But that also operated for these conservative white veterans who seem to find, for whatever reason, you know their, their racial proclivities are strengthened by service in the war. Mm. And they feel they're entitled as white men to this power when they get back. And so they, that's expressed in a way where they're trying to combat uh, black voting. Oh, yeah. um, and then there's a whole range of that in the middle, too, but the common thread, I'd say, would be service in the war tends to yield a sense of civic entitlement yeah. to power oh, Okay, when when veterans return.
0: Yeah, that totally makes sense. Super interesting. <laughs> Very interesting. We're going to go to a two-minute ad break, but we'll see you after the break. Okay.
1: All right. Welcome back on uh, WEGL 91.1 FM here at Auburn University. Uh, it's all history to me with Sophia and myself, and today we are with Dr. Brooks. If you're just joining us, we just wrapped up talking about Dr. Brooks's first book, and now we are moving on to have a little bit of a discussion about her recently published book entitled Resident Strangers, Immigrant Laborers in New South Alabama, which was published by the Louisiana State University Press in 2022. Dr. Brooks's work focuses on immigrant laborers in the late 19th and early 20th centuries and their experiences in the New South, Alabama. So when you say the New South, what does that mean, and how would you define it?
2: Good question. So the New South um, is uh, typically a definition that's both like geographical Mm -hmm. and chronological. Okay. So geographical, it would be well, we would say like the states of the former Confederacy. Mm-hmm. Um, but you could kind of that's always being debated, so you could <laughs> like, let's just throw Kentucky in there anyway. right you yeah, know, maybe yeah Missouri or Southern Indiana or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then chronologically, uh, in this I would define it as basically 1865 to uh, 1929 Okay. The book really focuses, it doesn't really go as far as 1929, mm-hmm. and it's more like 1870 to 1920, Okay, but it, it's a term that means like the South that emerges after the end of the Civil War, yeah. but before um, the Great Depression.
1: Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense.
0: What moved you from focusing to, on World War II veterans to immigrants in the New South?
2: Um, well, as I mentioned before, um, I kind of wanted to do something different. Um, I, I didn't want, I wasn't ready to jump into turning that, um, the research about the strike in 1950 into a book at that point after I'd done the exhibit. So, um, and then with the focus on that history, um, about while I was involved in the, the immigrant justice movement, I decided to, I just wanted to kind of find out what was, what was the role of immigrants, um, in, in the new South. And, you know, I really wanted to, um, kind of see, it, you know, I had a bigger vision of it being more, bring it all the way up to the present. Um, but mostly I wanted to, um, kind of make a case for a complex population building the new South, that mm-hmm. it's not just, a. a a time period or a region or an era that's built by black and white Southerners, Mm -hmm. that it's much more complicated than that, and that the New South is built by a diversity of people. Mm -hmm. The South is built by a diversity of people, and no one group has more claim on that history or that politics than any other group, particularly. And that kind of informed why I wanted to look at this question and see what actually is that history. Um, and I ended up focusing on laborers as a way to kind of impose a little bit more simplicity on what really is a pretty complex question. Yeah. And since I'm a labor historian primarily at this point, that's what I was most interested in. Mm-hmm. But also the role of Birmingham in the New South is, is yeah. you know, really interesting, hmm. and it's like the key major industrial region. And so... You couldn't really talk about immigration in Alabama without focusing a lot on labor yeah. because you have Birmingham and the coal mining district, mm-hmm. but you also have basically agriculture remaining the primary economic sector in Alabama, and that means sharecropping and the cotton uh, economy. Hmm. So again, laborers, yeah. right? Yeah. So that's why I ended up focusing on the laborer part oh. of that.
1: That's super interesting, and I really like how your mission is to make sure that like the history of all of Alabama is known. And that's super cool. And I really like that that's something that history has the power to do. Cool. Yeah. So how did immigrant labor in the New South differ from
2: immigrant labor in the North
1: in the late 19th and early 20th centuries or in other regions of the U.S.?
2: Uh, I guess I would turn the question around mm. and, and say the, the the major point is it's not that different. Okay. Okay. That this is a, a way to argue um, or to show that this idea of Southern exceptionalism is not necessarily um, oh, a valid yeah. one. I mean, yeah. there's always elements to every community that are unique to that community mm-hmm. or to that state or what have you. But um, I think what I've found is that the experience of immigrant laborers is very much um, like an iconic Southern experience yeah. of the New South, Yeah, which means the these um, laborers encountered All sorts of um, racial issues in terms of their identity Mm -hmm. and how others were defining them Mm -hmm. and giving, like, imposing an identity on them. Um, But also, they're encountering all these elements of um, Southern history Hmm. at the time, Mm -hmm. like uh, discovering the legal injustices of the system. Yeah. Um, And so, ending up in the convict lease system, for example. being the group primarily arrested and put on trial for violence in labor conflicts in the Birmingham district, oh, yeah. being mostly immigrants, mm. um, which is really interesting. Yeah, and so, is. But those experiences of that sort of injustice is mm-hmm. not necessarily unique to the South. right? Um, I think the racial element of that, mm-hmm. again, that's a more national experience. So you get immigrant groups who are racialized in all sorts of ways in other parts of the South. I mean, excuse me, in other parts of the the United States. But there are sort of interesting elements to the Southern story that are a little bit different. So if you take the case of um, Chinese immigrants, for example, Mm -hmm. um, they're highly racialized by white Americans on the West Coast, right? Mm -hmm. So and you take the case of, like, Chinese laborers who helped – played a significant role in building the Transcontinental Railroad, for example – and then when that project's completed or sort of kicked off the railroad projects, become victims of violence against Chinese laborers mm-hmm. um, by other laborers there, white laborers. And so that's kind of a history we know. But you get also Chinese immigrants and laborers who come to the southern states. And in some cases, again, well, across the board, they're, they're sort of racialized for their identities um, but it's unclear where do they fit in. Are they black or are they white? Um, you know, how they're not, either. Yeah, you know, really yeah. they're neither. But in terms of a Jim Crow system that's defined mm-hmm. by black or white, right? it gets complicated about where yeah, they fit in. And, and what I've found is that in Alabama, in particular, the Chinese communities that were basically in almost every community in Alabama had at least one or more. Chinese residents,
1: usually Mm -hmm.
2: running laundries Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes restaurants or sometimes groceries. Mm -hmm. Um, Their presence is actually small enough that they weren't perceived by most white Alabamians as a a direct threat necessarily. Interesting. And because a lot of um, churches in Alabama had, particularly the Baptists, had connections to missionary efforts in China, Chinese residents were at times able to kind of take that idea of Chinese conversion to Christianity and play it to their advantage. Oh, and so interesting. they could sometimes sort of leverage that to avoid being just relegated completely to hmm. the category of black and other and with less power and that sort of thing. Mhm. But at the same time, they they found themselves kind of victimized by both sides. Oh, wow, wow. Hmm. And so what I focus on in the book is um the first um, group of Chinese that come in 1870 to help build the Alabama-Chattanooga Railroad. Mm-hmm. And that turns out to be a really horrible experience for them. Um, and they leave. They go mostly to Louisiana. Oh,
1: wow.
2: Um, but then later, Chinese come in the 1880s to, through the 1920s as individuals, usually, mm-hmm. moving in, setting up laundries in the Birmingham District and other places in the state. In the Birmingham district, there's a series of murders of Chinese laundrymen oh. that all go unsolved, basically, oh, wow. in 1911, 1912 or so. Mm. And that gives you kind of an interesting avenue into this kind of transitional racial identity that the Chinese immigrant laborers had oh, in the state by looking at that
1: yeah. as well. Yeah,
2: And so, yeah, so there's a kind of a similar complex story for each one of these mm. immigrant groups, whether Italian laborers or... Um, Slavic immigrants, which is a real important part of the story I tell in here as well. Oh, that's
0: cool. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, we're going to go to our last ad break, and we'll see you in two minutes. If
2: you've been working, you've already proven yourself in ways you may not even notice. Managing your time, communicating effectively, and working as part of a team are key skills that employers value. At alabamaworks.com, you can find out how to build on your experience to up your game and get the job you really want because it's out there. Start your new success story at alabamaworks.com. Sponsored by Alabama Works, the Alabama Broadcasters Association, and this station. In the Army National Guard, family means everything.
0: They really appreciate what she's done as a sister as well as a soldier and, you know, supporting their country. Our parents, they were really supportive that all five of us would join. Family members that are soldiers in
2: the Army National Guard inspire and influence, setting a path for others. It's
0: validating
1: knowing that, you know, I kind of did my part to make sure this is what they actually wanted and that they feel the same way I do. I'm really proud that we get to help shape the future, and I know that my sisters are going to be amazing soldiers.
2: Serving part-time in the Army National Guard instills
0: pride that you and your family will share in. A lot of pride, and they're just out there doing something every day and then serving their country as well.
2: I got my education because of the Guard. I got to travel
0: a little bit and experience a whole different culture.
2: Visit NationalGuard.com to learn more about part-time service.
0: Sponsored by the Alabama Army National Guard. Aired by the Alabama Broadcasters Association and this station. Watch out for people riding bikes. It's not just courteous. Now, it's the law. The new 3 Feet for Safety Act requires that drivers give at least 3 feet of space when passing bicyclists. More and more people are commuting and touring Alabama on bicycles. As the number of cyclists on our roads increases, so does the need for safe driving. So slow down and give cyclists 3 feet of room. Follow the rules of the road and watch out for each other. Learn more at drivesafealabama.org. Sponsored by ALDOT, the Alabama Broadcasters Association, and this station
1: welcome back to it's all history to me we're here with dr brooks this morning and for our final segment of this morning we are hoping to do a little q a trivia based section Uh uh-oh all right (laughs) disclaimer that i am terrible
2: at trivia so (laughs) totally
1: understandable well we'll see we have two questions for you this morning okay all right the first one is what was the first black labor union
2: the first black labor union? Yeah. All right, it's probably not the first, so I'm just going to jump for the one that I want to talk about, mm-hmm. which is the Knights of Labor. Okay. Yeah. And the Knights of Labor actually is not a sole black labor union. Yeah. But it was one of the most important of the, of the New South period mm. and in the United States as well um, in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And it was one of the first industrial unions that mm-hmm. organized um, all industrial workers, regardless okay. of skill level, yeah. and, but more importantly, they're one of the first unions to really reach out to organize um, black Americans okay. and women yeah. also and immigrant laborers to mm-hmm. some degree. That one's a little dicey, but mm-hmm. um, I would I would say it's the Knights of Labor.
1: Okay, okay super interesting well what we found is that it is the colored national labor union that was the first predominantly black labor union and that the brotherhood of sleeping car porters was the first
2: all black labor union right 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 with a philip randolph yeah yeah okay cool cool all
0: right our second question is how many living world war ii u.s veterans are there today I don't have that statistic. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. Not one. I just yeah. You
2: know, let me yeah. get it
0: out of my wallet here. Um,
2: <laughs> it's a tough it's one. obviously a, a population that that's you know drastically declined. Mm-hmm. Um, even since I published this book in two thousand four, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's gone. Obviously, folks mm-hmm. keep dying. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, so there's not not a whole lot left. More than you would think, though.
0: Mm-hmm. The answer we found, according to the National World War II Museum, is that one hundred thousand six hundred sixty thousand seven hundred two hundred and eighty-four of the six million who served were alive of, as of twenty twenty-two. Yeah,
2: drastic drop. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yes.
2: Yeah. All right.
1: Well, thanks for playing our little trivia portion there. Okay, so for our final two questions of the show, we like to ask every uh, professor that we've had on uh, these questions because they tie really well into our theme of people and power Mm -hmm. for this semester or season of the podcast. So what is, or why is it so important that we study history, in your opinion?
2: Yeah, so, you know, I think my answers have probably changed to that it's something i've been thinking about a lot recently mm-hmm. and i i think i probably would have given a different answer before 2016 oh yeah um so i mean i think on a personal level for mm-hmm. each of us you, you, it's important to study history to understand who you are yeah and who you are as a as an individual who your family is mm-hmm. and who your what your community is yeah yeah um and to have a an accurate as much as possible understanding of what that is and mm-hmm. what that means mm-hmm. um i think it's important as for us as citizens to study history and understand our own history and all of its complexity and yeah. its injustices um i think that's really really important mm-hmm. i think part of being an educated citizen is to have an understanding of history yeah um and Having said that, you know, I can't really say <laughs> that studying history is a guarantee that we're not going to repeat the mistakes of the past. Right. Because clearly we can keep studying history a lot and people can choose to disregard those lessons. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the fact that things like, um, well, the question of, of teaching history has become such a political Pot potatoes yeah a political issue yeah. is actually a uh, shows the importance of it
1: oh that yeah that's a great way of looking at it
2: and it's really important in the sense and politically in the sense that it's an issue that can be manipulated and exploited for political purposes hmm. and so if you don't know actually your history then you don't know that you're that your sense of the past is actually being exploited and manipulated, oh, or yeah. that you're you're traveling on an inaccurate sense of the past mm. and who you are. yeah um, and I think that's really important when it comes to for Americans mm-hmm. a sense of grievance yeah that a lot of people like to carry around and a sense of victimization that maybe your sense of grievance actually isn't that valid. Mm. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's something that you're being told by a politician when actually You need to go back and look at the actual history and see what it is. And, you know, obviously I'm talking about, you know, states like Florida that are trying to tell us that we can't teach black history, for example. Right. You know, um, so I think history is obviously really important to understand. Mm -hmm. And And it's, you know, it's not just about political issues. Everything has a history. Yeah. Right. And and it enriches one's life as well. Yeah. You know, aside from the political issues, aside from whether, you know, um, you create educated citizens, Mm -hmm. but a sense of history enriches your life. It changes the way you see the world. It can change the way you interact with the world and with each other and and in a good, positive way, I think. Absolutely. Um, But it's really important, I think.
1: Yeah, definitely. That totally makes sense.
0: Thank you. We have one more question before we wrap it up, and that is what advice do you have for current and future students of history?
2: Gosh, um, I guess my advice would be um, to not just limit your learning to the classroom. Mm. And you don't have to depend on the class necessarily to pick up a book and read it about yeah. history. Yeah, um, you can do that on your own. And always to be, you know, pushing to ask questions um, and searching for answers to that. Um, and I think, you know, always if you're on a more concrete level, if you're you're thinking about writing a senior thesis, for example, if you're a history major, um, just look for the topics that really are exciting to you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they can be some weird stuff, <laughs> right, and still be good good history topics. Um, but my advice would be to try to, um, in that regard, look for things that aren't kind of the typical, you oh, know. Yeah, like, yeah. And this is my personal bias, I guess, But and Dr. Dombey will get angry with me for saying this probably, <laughs> but like, you know don't really know that we need a lot more student theses on the civil war i mean there's always stuff there of course but like why not look at reconstruction instead yeah oh yeah or you know just that's my my bias but um (laughs) yeah look for things that excite excite you Mm -hmm. that you can be passionate about um ask questions and you know be in charge of your own learning yeah
1: yeah great advice great advice all right well to wrap up today's episode we'd like to say a big thank you to you dr brooks thank you for coming waking up early here to join us this morning (laughs) thank you of course to the history department and our faculty advisor dr schultz for the history club Thank you to the College of Liberal Arts for your support in our endeavors. Thanks, of course, to our researchers for putting together these excellent questions for our conversation this morning. Thank you to Weagle for having us on. And thank you to our listeners. Without you, we wouldn't be able to make this happen. So thanks for your interest and see you next week. Thank you. You've been listening to It's All History to Me, the show dedicated to exploring the people, places, and ideas of our past. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday at 7 a.m. for more. But for now, keep it here on Weagle 91.1. See you next time.